0: Hey guys, Ryan here. The Summer in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up.
2: Today on the show, astrophysicist, principal investigator of Vasco, and winner of the L'Oreal Prize for Women in Science, Beatrice Villaroyal.
3: My team is searching for objects that have vanished or appeared during 70 years on our night sky. This includes a number of exotic astrophysical phenomena, including stars that collapse directly into black holes. It also includes uh, possible signatures of E.T. Our research is basic research, which means that it contributes to human knowledge and aims to answer some of the most profound questions. For example, are we alone here?
0: This is
1: Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague.
0: Beatrice, thank you so much for joining us today on Somewhere in the Skies. It's a pleasure yeah we're really excited to talk to you when Chrissy and I first heard about your work, and we saw that you were the winner of the uh the twenty twenty one l'oreal unesco for women in Science award. We were like, "Yes, this is someone we have to talk to not only because of the amazing work you've done but um highlighting the work of women in science which which you know is an issue a lot of the times when it comes to Who's at the forefront of talking about these things? And um, we were super excited. So, yeah, um, Chrissy, if you don't mind, I'd love to start and ask Beatrice the obvious question, like how she got interested in all this stuff. So, Beatrice, how did you first get interested in astrophysics and what made you want to take that that journey? Actually, it wasn't a clear thing for me. I always liked a lot of things. Um,
3: I have always been very passionate about music. Uh, since I was a kid, I really loved playing violin a lot. I still love playing violin. Um, at the same time, I was quite intrigued by science and I was, as a teenager, I was particularly interested in molecular biology and I thought that it was so cool, like how DNA becomes a protein and all these things. However, with time I discovered like that th- there were many questions in astrophysics that intrigued me as well. And I mean and since I was a kid I was always kind of a nerd. I loved Star Wars and all these things and so astronomy has kind of been very natural for me. Um like a choice.
0: Right. Well you're talking to two yeah. Star Wars fans here as well. Right. So you're in good company. You're in good company. Um I love that. <laughs> I love hearing the origin story of how People get interested in what they do. Um, Chrissy, do you want to take it from here?
2: Yeah, you said music, you brought up the music part. Have you been able to bring bridge music and your passion for it into the work that you're doing in science? Have there been any intersections of that?
3: Actually, I was organizing for several years chamber music concerts at my uh, alma mater uh, where, where I did my PhD. During those years, I was doing my PhD studies. I also organized this concerts and sometimes played on them. So I did that. It, it has been very important for me to kind of keep the music alive. I, I can't function unless I both do music and science at the same time.
2: Yeah. So. And you have like two, um, research fields. Can you break them down a little bit for us and like what they consist of?
3: So one of the things I like working with is, uh, active galactic nuclei. I think many might've heard of quasars and, and they know that quasars are like extremely luminous galaxy cores that you can find. And, um, these kind of quasars i've been very very interested in trying to understand the physics and of them and so on and the second thing i'm very interested in is searching for vanishing stars because uh, this is a field that is pretty untouched and that i always been or not always but that i have been very excited about in the last years
0: Yeah, the vanishing stars aspect of this is what I'm really interested in hearing about and how this will eventually relate to, uh, you know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and whatnot. But I actually heard you in an interview, um, talk about how you first got interested in the idea of vanishing stars. And I loved how endearing the story was. Uh, Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure, I
3: can. T- I can tell the story. I actually also posted it on my blog on the eleventh of February on, on the um, uh, Inter- International Day for Women and Girls in Science. Um, so it's. Um, I-, I was younger. <laughs> I was. Uh, I think either I was in my undergrad years or I was a PhD student. I don't remember exactly, unfortunately, when it was. I was. I, I used to write some kind of fables and short stories and when I, whenever I had something I wanted to tell I usually typed it down for myself. It's, I, I usually never share these stories or very seldom I share it with someone. <laughs> and so I was writing this kind of fable about a sad quasar <laughs> and I kind of wrote it and then I towards the end uh, I sent him through a wormhole and <laughs> And then I kind of started wondering, has anyone ever seen an object just vanishing from the sky? Has nothing to do with science. Absolutely nothing with science. It was just, uh, um, well, me, uh, a younger version of myself uh, typing up these fables and stories. And that's kind of how I got the idea. I got stuck with it. And then I wanted to check it. The problem was that I didn't have any tools. I didn't have the means. I didn't know which surveys I could use. And uh, so I postponed it. And in in my, in the final year of my PhD studies, I knew how I could do it. And I tried, and I tried it with like 1% of the database that I had access to because it was a too big um, effort. And that's kind of how Vasco Project was born. It turned out to be super difficult to check, technically.
0: But, yeah. interesting i i see that's so cool how like your curiosity as a kid would ultimately lead to like this huge project that you undertook i love hearing stories like that we always hear like science fiction you know inspires a lot of scientists until they can make it science fact when you when i heard that story i was like i have to ask her about that but um the vasco project um i love to hear you know, how you started this, um, what exactly it is. And yeah, would you mind telling us a little more about that?
3: So the Vasco project is the Vanishing and Appearing Sources During a Century of Observations project. is uh, a project where we're looking for vanishing objects, anything that vanishes from the sky. And the hope is to find something that was there, there, always was there, and one day it just vanishes. Of course, we don't know if these objects exist at all. Uh, we only know that there are not many studies that have dedicated to look for them because people just assume that it kind of doesn't happen. If you have a star that dies, either it's going to um, like um, go supernova, or it's going to transform into a white dwarf, which, which will take billion of years if it, has, if it transforms into this white dwarf. So you have these two modes for a star to die, but there is nothing that says that it's going to just vanish. So now there is actually a hypothesis that some stars might collapse directly into a black hole uh, in so-called failed supernovae. But this is a hypothesis. Nobody knows if uh, this failed supernovae ever happen. So um, there's obviously a science case also. So the Vasco project is therefore looking for these kind of vanishing objects. In the Vasco project, there is also a connection to like SETI research because this is uh, an example of a so-called impossible effect. And uh, we proposed in a paper in 2016 that you can look for things that are impossible. Let's say a star that vanishes or a galaxy that vanishes, to take it even more absurd. Um, Because these kind of impossible effects uh, would be a sign of something that would look like magic to us And uh, we know from Arthur C. Clarke's laws that anything that looks like magic uh, can just be a very, very advanced technology. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I said it exactly as it was written there, but something in this... Close uh, enough. Okay, sufficiently (laughs) advanced technology (laughs) could look like magic.
0: Right. We do hear that a lot in the UFO research community. You know, what may look impossible to us and even some of our most advanced, you know, fighter pilots saying that what they saw, what they chased, these anomalies in the sky performed unlike anything they'd ever seen. And yeah, that's gonna look like magic to us until we understand the technology being displayed in what these anomalies might be. So I find that fascinating as well. Um before uh Chrissy takes it over from here, uh with the Vasco project, I love to know have you found any of these anomalies or anything um, really compelling in the research that you've done that would lead you to think, yeah, yeah, I think we're on the right track.
3: I think we found something that is very compelling, but could also have a very mundane and boring cause. And we don't know which one it is right now, if it's the exciting cause or the boring cause. So uh, last year we published a paper um, uh, in scientific report where we see nine uh, sources of light that appear and vanish within half an hour or like or something of that order of magnitude within the exposure time of the photographic plates so this plate is from 1950 and uh, you have these star looking things that uh, are there if you look at the plate that was taking half an hour earlier they are not there you take a look at this like at the same region of the sky six days later and they are not there so we have to try to like identify the cause with we do, we try to look for all kind of astrophysical effects that could cause that. And it's simply too many of these transients uh, uh, in a too, too small image of the sky to be anything that we know, like any astrophysical phenomenon that we are aware of. So we did all those checks, uh, all known astrophysics, uh, gone. So uh, then we started looking at all kinds of instrumental issues. We have been thinking, for example, of double exposure and so on. And we haven't found anything that sh- that shows or proves us that this is something instrumental either. Which, of course, means it still can be instrumental. For example, maybe, maybe there is some type of rare contamination or something like that that would look exactly like stars. Uh, so we've been thinking if it could be, for example, some... Um, Well, so maybe a nuclear fallout or something like that. Mm. And um, something boring. Uh, We have also been wondering if it could be something more exciting because uh, it doesn't have to be instrumental effects, even if we know that most of the times it is still the boring explanation that wins over time. Um, And this kind of more exciting idea has been that maybe... Maybe uh, what we see could be some kind of solar reflection, solar reflections of uh, objects that are in high orbit around Earth, and that objects that are very reflective and flat. Um, because if you would actually use the same instrumentation and have a look at images today, you have so much of space debris that you can actually see uh, transients that that kind of appear and vanish uh, in a small image. This is kind of one of the things that you see. When you have these space debris, you see lots of glints here and there. However, this image is from 1950, seven years before Spook Nikon. So um, that's the more exciting uh, hypothesis, but one should always start with the most boring explanation and maybe go from there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Hey, I wouldn't say that nuclear fallout is boring, but um, I (laughs) hope it's, I hope it's the other answer. I honestly do. Um, well, um, Chrissy, I'd love if you took yeah. it from here. I yeah, know we sure. have some other questions relating to Vasco and, and whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah, please.
2: I just I think it even if it's mundane, it's still exciting. Like all of the research that you're doing is is, is wonderful and exciting overall. Um I wonder, like, does does your work cross over into cosmology and, and has it? And if so, how does it how does it cross over into it?
3: Uh, my work is not crossing over to cosmology right now. Um the work I do with AGN sometimes has some, um, some uh, implications for cosmology, possibly, or some of it might have had. Uh, all the objects I work with are fairly close to me or to us. So it doesn't really uh, dive into cosmology as such.
0: Um, well, you did mention instruments. Beatrice, um, I'd love to know where where do you work out of when you're when you're doing this. Um, what type of instruments are you using? Um, is this a like an observatory in Sweden that you use, or or how does that work? It's much
3: uh, simpler for me in, the, in this in sense.
0: I don't work with the instruments directly
3: myself. I use uh, public data from um, like surveys that have been done by all astronomers. Mm. For example, uh, I use images from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. I use images from the Palomar Sky Surveys, these images that were taken in the 50s and 60s and so on.
0: That, that actually bleeds into my next question then. Um, citizen science, you know, how, how can people, you know, who an, amateur astronomers or, or people like that, how can they actually be a part of the research, I guess, is my question. And um, how far have you gone into the citizen science realm? So we
3: have actually uh, made a citizen science project and it has been developed um, by the Uppsala University's uh, IT department uh, where they have designed a very wonderful web page that is also gamified so that it should be a little bit more fun for the users where a citizen scientist can go there and compare two images of the sky, one from 1950 and one from, let's let's say, five or ten years ago and can see if a star that was there has vanished in the new image. So uh, the citizen scientists can go there and uh, make any comments she or he finds important, and um, well, simply participate in the project. It's open for everyone, and uh, the citizen science project is very fun f- for me to work with as well. Uh, we are working in particular with uh, some institutes in. Um, in in, in Algeria and in Nigeria, and uh, with amateur associations in uh, Algeria. And it's super fun because we have a, a very good collaboration there.
0: I love that. The whole citizen science thing really, I think, brings the world together. You know, it seems like there's a lot of division in the world going on right now. But I love that coming back to these topics of you know, space exploration, and um, even UFOs, it actually like bridges that gap and we can all like come together and share our information. So yeah, I think that's awesome. That's why I love citizen science, Um, citizen archaeology. I'm part of an amateur project there where I go over Google map images for hours on end. To see if you know I'm finding the same things as other people, so I, I finally my dream has come true, and I'm sort of an Indiana Jones. So that's uh, that's fun for me that I can have some some place in the scientific world. So Chrissy, please take it from there.
2: Yeah, mind. yeah. No, I, I think that's wonderful. It's fabulous. You're based in Sweden, from I from what I know, I, and I'm gonna just you know go into the UFO question. I've talked to some people, you know, in Clubhouse and, you know, which is a great app and you get to, you know, talk to people internationally in real time. And a, a friend now that's in the Clubhouse is from Sweden. And he said that the conversation around UFOs is is not really big in Sweden. Do you do you know why that might be? Um, you know, it's, they say it's kind of like people are really mum about it. It's not very much of a conversation now. It, or maybe that's changing.
3: Uh, I don't recall many conversations about UFOs with any one of my Swedish colleagues or Swedish friends. I think there's a very different approach or attitude to UFOs in the United States and in Sweden. Um, yeah. And uh, I think like um, if a Swede sees something weird on the sky, she or he will most likely first say, well, maybe it's a helicopter or maybe it's a weird airplane and uh, the, the interpretation will always be... Um, will maybe always be the most boring explanation first. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I can imagine that.
0: I'd love to kind of play off of that, Beatrice. The idea of UFOs. A lot of people do believe that these are craft or these are some sort of intelligence that might be extraterrestrial in origin. So in the research and work you've done, Has there ever been any compelling data that would lead you to believe that there might be extraterrestrial intelligence out there, um, interstellar even? Uh, Yeah, what do you think about the whole idea of these UFOs, people seeing on Earth, could be piloted or in control by some sort of, I guess, E.T.?
3: I think I am a UFO agnostic uh, in the sense that I actually don't know at all what I think about it. It's like, depending on if you ask me in the morning or in the evening, you might get a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> <Stay Yeah. here. laughs> so, so that's kind of my um, initial like impression on UFOs. I think that people's experiences are always real or almost always real, like in 99% of the cases. On the other hand, I don't know if I would attribute them to anything supernatural. That's that's exactly what I hope to find out, if there's some uh, something, like, like, let's say, if there's something like extraterrestrial behind these kind of sightings. That's something I think it would be super cool if I had a chance to find out during my lifetime as a researcher. On the other hand, I think there is... Um, a uh, very wonderful opportunity for astronomers to study anomalies on the sky now, especially if there is some kind of support for that UAP uh, sightings might be uh, real sightings of something anomalous. I-, I think it brings a wonderful opportunity for projects like the Galileo project. Mm-hmm. And uh, I-, I think one shouldn't miss out on this beautiful opportunity to learn more about the universe. But so far, I must say, I haven't seen anything that has convinced me in in science that there is, um, um, that, the, that the youth, sorry, that ET has been here. But there are things, that some indications that might, one might uh, see published in the scientific literature and uh, that says that the question is uh, justified to pose and that we should be looking, maybe more like that.
0: I love that. At least you're willing to ask the question, because I feel like for so long, many in the scientific community weren't willing to do that. And we do see individuals, you know, kind of putting, let's be honest, their reputation on the line and saying, we need to ask this question. That is part of the scientific method. You have people like Avi Loeb with the Galileo Project. You have um, your project with Vasco and searching for dying stars and what that could mean. Um, So I guess kind of playing off of that, I'd love to know, um, SETI, is this a organization that you've ever worked with? And what do you think about their idea of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence through uh, such things as radio waves? Do you think there are more uh, beneficial ways that we could be trying to search for ET intelligence or even communicate with them other than just radio signals?
3: I think looking for radio signals is a fantastic uh, first uh, idea to explore and one has been doing it since the 1960s. And I think there's a very wide parameter space one can look into and um, I think it's great that they are doing these searches in California. I think, however, that one can also try different methods. I think, for example, expanding searches in the optical, uh, expanding searches um, with other methods, uh, for example, like doing more space archaeology in in the solar system, because there are so many different ways one can look for ET. And and if one is willing to look for thing for life far, far, far away, I don't see why we shouldn't be looking for. Uh, extraterrestrials much closer to our science uh, of extraterrestrial life, um, much closer to yeah, where we are. If if the UFOs really are caused by extraterrestrials, it means that it's uh, a low lying fruit or low hanging fruit, low hanging mm-hmm. fruit for a, for a scientist to sort out.
2: Yeah, did you um, by chance get to read the UFO report that was released? There was a preliminary report, right, on uh, June 25th of last year. What was your perspective from it and your scientific perspective of it and and your thoughts and feelings around it?
3: I I have been thinking about that report quite a lot and I've been changing my opinion back and forth about it as well, depending on if you ask me in the morning or in the evening. (laughs) Um, I found it very interesting. Uh, I liked the fine wording it used. Um, I am still skeptical to it because it's, this data is not public. It's not published. It's a report, and uh, it's not like scientists can go there and have a look at the data and play with it themselves. You just need to trust whoever who wrote the report that the analysis was correctly done. So okay. I'm so I'm both skeptical to it at, at, at the same time as I find it as a good enough reason to actually do this research for those who are interested. I think we need to remove the stigma from uh, UFO research.
0: And I, and I think yeah. that's kind of what the US government is trying to do to get their active military involved and to report these UFOs when in the past they haven't done that. But I think you're right. I think the next big step is, well, we that data in the reports, where does that go next? And I obviously believe it should be going to The scientific community the ones who can actually explain these things i think in the report they looked at 144 ufo reports and they explained one one as a balloon but what about the 143 others could they be explained by citizen science could they be explained by our top leading scientists throughout the world possibly but that information is classified and we will probably never know what's in it. So how do we study something when we don't have the data to study it? That's the, uh, I think, the conundrum and and the frustration by many in the science world and in the UFO community of, hey, look, we could help you. Um, may, we will probably be wrong, but we could at least ask questions that you're not. So, I mean, that's my personal opinion on the report. Uh, but people have heard my opinion enough.
2: Yeah, I think it's actually a really it's a great comment that you said, like, how are we really able to fact check it? It's just somebody who wrote it and now it's, we have to take it as fact. I think that's great. Right? Um, why, you know, we, we should be able to ask more questions and hopefully in the next coming months, you know, in years that when more reports come out, they start giving us better data. Cause I think you're right. Mm-hmm. The scientific community is going to ask for it. And I'm happy that I think I'm really happy
3: you made that comment. Uh, one thing that we are going to, to to do or that we are trying to do now with the Vasco project is that um, so we are t- trying to test for this hypothesis of that there might be something uh, artificial in, ha- in high orbits around the Earth before um, the first satellite was launched. And this turns out to be quite easy to do uh, if you use old photographic material from, uh, let's say, from the 50s or if you would have material that is even older. Because what you can can look for is uh, several glints that fall upon a line. Because if you have something um, that is very reflective and it's um, far away from the Earth and, and it maybe rotates or spins around its axis, it's going to give us a few glints. And that's kind of what we see today also with satellites. And you can look for these things. And uh, you can look for this in old photographic plate material. And if you have a single piece, it should show up in these uh, images. And that's one thing we can do. Then we don't deal with any human reports, not with any classified data. We deal with public data, data that is already out there, digitized there that any person can get access to. Citizen scientists can help to look through it. And if there's a single sign of ET or a single uh, piece of metal in the wrong place at the wrong time, we should be able to see it
2: so um you know being a female in science how has the landscape changed is like a female perspective from like over the years from when you maybe first started to where it has now has how, how has it changed for women in science
3: i think it's steadily progressing and becoming better and better i cannot imagine how difficult it must have been let's say 50 years ago or 30 years ago but i think it's a uh, uh, always progressing, and uh, the conditions today are, I think, pretty good. It can still be better, of course, and I still think there is some work uh, to do to make it better.
2: Uh, yeah, and, and L'Oreal is working like right now, like you're working with them in Women in Science. How did that all come about working with L'Oreal? And um, we watched the video that's come out that they did, the, the little bio piece on you, which is really lovely and wonderful. How did that all start? And to be honest, that was one of the first times I've heard that L'Oreal's been been doing that as a is a larger beauty brand. So, you know, kudos to them. A little bit of a plug, but kudos to L'Oreal for that. But yeah, how did that all how did that all start?
0: Do you like stories of the strange, the weird, and the unexplained? Then we want you to check out Jim Harold's campfire. The concept is pretty simple. Jim talks to regular people about strange stuff that happens to them. And yes, that includes UFOs, along with cryptids, ghosts, and head scratchers. He doesn't exaggerate or play a lot of spooky music, kinda like I'm doing right now. The stories speak for themselves. Ones like a ghost story involving serial killer Ted Bundy, or the young man, who encountered an eight-legged demon. Then there's the story of an alien abduction by what could be considered a reptilian. Now, not all the stories are horrifying. Some are actually pretty heartwarming, like a visit from a past loved one or a peaceful near-death experience. Regardless, these are true and fascinating stories told by ordinary people who've had extraordinary experiences tune in to jim harold's campfire on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen to somewhere in the skies and remember stay spooky
1: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
3: So uh, I got the price last year, and um, I was like uh, super, super happy uh, when I got it because this is a price that you can apply for. And I had sent in my application, and I thought, I have no chance. Like, I, I, I just applied, like, for fun. I did the best, of course, with application. And then when I, like, got the letter, I was super shocked and super happy. Uh I, I couldn't believe it, that I got the prize. And um, so then, well, of course, we got to know uh, the, the, the organizers of the prize. And it was great, because um we were invited for... Um, a virtual ceremony because it was during the time of the pandemics which means that and um, they couldn't have the normal ceremony where hundred people are usually there and having dinners and all these fancy things like having beautiful dresses
0: <laughs>
3: yeah yeah I, I like these kind of things like ceremonies <laughs> anyway we had a virtual ceremony instead so they were filming and it, it was super cool because they also took very nice photos with um, uh, with a professional photographer. I thought it was super fun. Everything.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And you know, even to keep on the, the topic of women in science, do you have any advice for women? You know, young women that want to get into this topic and are curious and you know are interested in science. Do you have any advice of how they can start their career in that field?
3: My most important lesson has been to trust the gut feeling. Don't listen to senior scientists. Trust your gut feeling. If you feel that something is interesting. You follow that, even if the other ones say that this is boring or uninteresting or something like that. Um, I'm worried sometimes that maybe as the longer we are in science, the more we kind of gaslight this inner gut feeling we have. Like we, we, we always self-gaslight us and say, maybe this is not so important or so. No, I think one should just trust it and follow this intuition to watch what you want to work with. And that's my advice.
0: Yeah. yeah, The the questions you're asking in in the projects you're involved with uh, are some of the most profound questions we can ask of humanity. You know, is there life out there? What is out there? What comes next? Um, I, I I find it so inspiring. I remember hearing you know someone like the character of Dana Scully in the X Files television her. show. I love there her. There we go. See, she <laughs> after sh- her character came on television. They said that women got involved in the scientific world almost It shot up like 68% and that wow. she was the inspiration and reason that a lot of women got into science. So it's good to hear that uh, she had an impact on you Absolutely. as well. I can't even imagine what that feels like and that you're probably doing that for younger women as well who want to get interested in this. It's It's very cool
3: and this is what we have to do create better role models like interesting role models that uh, the younger generation can be uh, like inspired by
2: yeah science is uh, you know hopefully becoming cool again in many ways and and, and women are getting excited about it and they want to join in the community and learn more and research i think it's it's fabulous you know hopefully we'll see more in the years to come
0: i, I think absolutely. so um well what's to come that's what i'd love to ask to kind of wrap things up two two questions for you um and the big the first one's kind of big um say there is an extraterrestrial intelligence out there somewhere um or just something non-human um that will possibly make contact with earth or has made contact um what do, you, what do you want that to be? Do you want it to be alien? Do you want it to be interdimensional? Do you want it to be humans from the future coming back and visiting us? Is there any like true answer to this UFO yes. question that you personally want?
3: Hmm. Yes. I would wish it to be some aliens with a very strong um, interest into uh, art that would compose a lot of beautiful music and share all these art with us, so that we could get enriched culturally. Like, like for, for example, um, we have all these wonderful like composers all over the world today. But imagine if we could get a factor hundred more music coming to us to listen to. Right, that's what I would like.
0: I love that more art. Right. Is definitely yeah. what we need, and who's to say some of these composers aren't aliens? I mean, some that- of the things they they oh, do I, 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 are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, what comes next, Beatrice? I know the Vasco project is ongoing. Um, I know you're doing some work with other organizations and whatnot. So, what comes next for you and your uh, your endeavors in the scientific world?
3: So, we are now uh, trying to wrap up the first phase of the citizen science project. We have uh, like more than 250,000 classifications, and we're working on like vetting the most interesting candidates. And also, uh, we are now actually doing the analysis uh, in the searches for these glints uh, along a line. Uh, we published a few, one week ago a paper um, in Acta Astronautica. That uh, describes how you can do these searches, and now we're actually carrying them out and we're analyzing the results. So that is the first thing that that comes to me. Trying to see, is there a single piece of metal in orbit around the Earth uh, before Sputnik One?
2: Interesting. I'm very, I'm so that
0: would would that sort of fall into the realm of technosignatures? Some sort of technology that is not from here or originated on Earth? Would that be considered something? Techno signature esque.
3: Well, yes, it would be a techno signature, but right in our own backyard. It would be, let's say, if ET uh, threw some space trash on the way to the Earth, then we would see that.
0: <laughs> Give us all your trash, aliens! For sure. Right, right. We will study until the end space of trash.
2: Time. <laughs> exactly, we'll be in museums forever. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah. So I, I, I'm excited okay. this is a bit of the project. Uh, so. Let's see if it gives us any consistent results or so. And I'm, I'm, I think even leaving with the
2: concept of space trash is like, I think it's awesome. And I'd love the, the whole <laughs> fact. Like you look at like, yeah, like a- alien artifacts and, and things to that. So I'm just glad that we're, you know, we're looking in all different areas. So it's exciting.
0: It's very exciting. Beatrice, I there's so much for me to go think about right <laughs> now after this conversation. and And that's what it's about. It's about making people think and keeping that curiosity going. And uh, that's what's honestly going to unravel the the answers to the questions we've had for all of human history. So I personally want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you for joining us on Somewhere in the Skies.
3: Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy you did. And I I want to contribute to destigmatizing the UFO topic.
1: Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.